You're listening to the City on a Hill DFW Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church or to support these ministries, visit us at cityonahilldfw.com. read 1 Corinthians chapter 9. This is verses 19 through 23. The Apostle Paul writes this, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To under the law I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings." As we begin the second week of the Ultimate Road Trip, a series that will evaluate the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul through the, really the latter portion of the book of Acts, I felt it important to read, uh, to begin our time this morning reading 1 Corinthians 9, to better understand the Apostles' approach to missions. We are reading about the missionary efforts through the Acts, but 1 Corinthians 9, uh, it gives us insight into the kind of thought process that went behind the mission. In in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul describes the mindset that he had with sharing the gospel towards non-believers. Paul was committed not only to knowing the scriptures well, but also to knowing his context well. For Paul, it was important to be well-versed in the word of God, but also the culture of the people he was trying to reach. In other words, as a missionary specifically, and as a Christian more broadly, knowing your context matters. Knowing your context matters a great deal. You could say it this way, sharing the gospel well means not only knowing what to say, but to whom you are saying it. In Acts chapter 13, our principal text for this morning, we get really a masterclass from the apostle on not only how to understand your audience, but how to effectively share the gospel with them as well. We pick up actually where we left off last week. If you remember last week, we began in Acts 13. We went up to verse 12. We begin this morning right where we left off in verse 13. Read 13 through 15 with me if you have your Bibles open. It says, now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people... Say it. So let's break this down because this really sets the stage for uh, the the scope of the narrative this morning that we're going to be looking at. Paul and Barnabas, if you remember, had uh, just left Cyprus. If you remember last week, they had gone to Cyprus to share the gospel with the proconsul Sergius Paulus. Remember, Barnabas was originally from Cyprus. And so uh, the Holy Spirit set them apart and sent them to Cyprus. The church in Antioch agreed. They celebrated. They sent them off. They go to Cyprus. The proconsul Sergius Paulus hears the the gospel. He believes. Remember, Elamaz, the magician that was with him, was blinded because of his opposition to the gospel. And, and the result of this 
is that the proconsul uh, is born again. He's established into the church. From there, the text says that they travel to a place called Pamphylia. And after departing from John Mark, they go into a place called Antioch in Pisidia. This is different, by the way, should make a note, from the Antioch from which they were coming. The church in Antioch that sent them on this mission is in Antioch of Syria. They are traveling to Antioch in Pisidia. That seems very confusing, uh, although it it shouldn't be that surprising to us. We have uh, several cities in the United States that I can think of that are in several states, and and you'll often hear that. Oh, you guys have one of those. It's weird. That's weird, yeah? Uh, but, But this is really better explained by understanding ancient culture and the way that cities were often named. Cities were established often by rulers or people of power in the ancient world, and people of power back then, no different than from today, really loved themselves, thought they were pretty awesome, and so they would often name cities after themselves. These two particular cities were established by the same leader, uh, the leader of what we call, history refers to as the Seleucid dynasty. He named both of these cities after his father, a man named Antiochus, Antioch Antiochus. You can see that. One thing you notice as you study the ancient world is how often major figures name the cities that they established. So they make it into Antioch and Pisidia, and like the good Christians that they are, even though they're traveling, one could think of this even maybe as sort of a vacation of sorts, they go to church. No excuses, people. When you travel, you still find a good church and you go and worship. Verse 14 says, on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and they sat down. The Sabbath would have been on a Saturday during this time. It's historically when the Sabbath was observed. And in the Sabbath service, you would pray and you would worship and you would learn from the scriptures. You would hear a reading from the Torah, uh, which is the first five books of the law of the Old Testament. You would also hear uh, a reading from the prophets. And so they go, they sit down. After the scriptures are read, it says, the rulers of the synagogues, or the president of the synagogue is another way of translating that. These are, you can think of these guys as pastors, essentially. They're the, the overseers of the Jewish synagogue. They asked Paul and Barnabas to come up and share. Apparently, Paul and Barnabas had gained quite the reputation as preachers and teachers, and so they asked if they would come up and share any word of encouragement that they might have. And so Paul seizes the moment, just like a good preacher. You want to have me come up and preach? Great, I'll come right now. He gets up and he begins to share the gospel with the crowd. And, and what, what I want you to notice this morning, and, and what we're going to see consistently throughout this passage, is how well the Apostle Paul knew his context, and how he used the knowledge of his context as an advantage to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want us to learn from him, so that we can apply this to our lives as well. What does it mean to know your context? What is it, when I say you need to know your context before you share your faith, what do I mean by that? First, from this passage, it means to know who your audience is. Know who your audience is. Verse 16 says, Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, he said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. Now, this is a verse you'd almost skip past. It's, 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 it's almost a passing verse to get to the actual story, right? But it's important because it indicates that Paul was very aware of who his audience was. In the synagogues, you would expect mostly Jewish men and women to be there for the worship service. But there were also a contingent of people known as God-fearing Gentiles. These were Gentiles 
who had begun to believe and worship the God of Israel. They came to worship and pray and learn. They had their own little section because the synagogues often separated Jews and Gentiles. Um, They were maybe not as well versed in the Old Testament as a Jewish man or woman because they weren't brought up in the synagogue, so they didn't have a, a definite knowledge of the whole scope, likely, of the Old Testament, but they were still very familiar with the big stories, very familiar with the big stories. So when Paul begins to stand up and preach, he knows his audience. And this is, this is so crucial. I cannot stress this enough. When you are sharing your faith, you need to know who you're talking to. Well, what if, what if I don't know my audience? Then ask them questions, right? Ask them where they grew up. Ask them what kind of things they're interested in. Ask them what kind of music they like. Don't ask them about their politics. Ask them about what kind of movies they love to watch. Ask them about things that kind of give some insight into who they are and how they think about the world. What is their view? What is their worldview? Knowing who you're speaking to should shape the way you speak to them. It should shape the way you speak to them if you're paying attention, unlike me, this summer. So this summer, I went and uh, I preached at a youth camp. I've, I've talked about it already uh, from a, a, a fellow church, a pastor, a friend of mine who, who pastors at Ovilla invited me to come and, and preach at their youth camp and, and uh, great time and, and, and I think successful camp. But one night, um, just a total failure on my part to remember my context. Um, knowing your context means knowing who your audience is, right? And, and so I had this uh, message planned and, and, I, and I did the message and it was good content, but I had this illustration that I was so excited to share with these kids. It's an illustration I've used here in church before. An illustration that I love. I think it's, it's a great story about a girl, you, if you were around, you probably know it, who was going to her car and thought a man was following her and she ran to her car and it turns out it was his car he got into. And, and it was just this whole, and, and the way the story unfolded, it, it, it's such a good illustration for the thing that I was teaching. And so I get to the big, like, the big punchline of the story, right? You know, she's in his car and she's trying to get away from this bad guy and he's banging on the door and he's like, ma'am, why are you in my car? And it's funny because she totally, he thought he was being robbed. But these, these kids, I mean, 75% of them don't drive. <laughs> so I get to the punchline and I'm like, you're in my car. And they're like, <laughs> and I, I mean, totally took the wind out of my sails. I'm like, all right, let's just pray and we'll be, I didn't end like that, but but it was, it was like, oh my gosh, I completely didn't estimate this well, didn't think about the context well. And that's what I'm talking about. Knowing your audience matters, knowing your audience matters. But more than that, you also need to know what your audience believes. So not just how they think, not just who they are culturally, but what do they believe? What do they believe about God? What do they believe about the afterlife and about morality and about spiritual things? Paul knew because he knew that both Jews and Gentiles were in this synagogue. He chose stories that he knew that they would both be aware of. He didn't choose obscure Old Testament stories. He chose the big ones. We don't have time to unpack this full sermon that he preaches in Acts 13. It's epic. If you have time to go back later today and read through Acts 13, it is 
beautifully done as he walks through, uh, starting in Genesis, all the way through David, and, and how God has worked to illustrate the, the way in which God is still working today through Christ. But I do want to point out three verbs in at least the first verse of this sermon, verse 17, that Paul uses that describes the work of God in the Old Testament and highlights how he still works today in Christ. And that is his goal here. His point in telling these Old Testament stories is not simply to educate them on the big stories of the Old Testament. They know those stories. It's to use them as a ramp into the gospel to demonstrate God is still doing this today. God is still like this in Christ. Verse 17, Paul says, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt and with an uplifted arm, he led them out of it. Paul is speaking here about the patriarchs of the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Genesis, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. He almost certainly also has Moses in mind as well because of his reference to the Exodus. If you remember, uh, Joseph is the one that leads the people into Egypt during a famine to save them from the famine, but it's in Exodus that God brings them out of Egypt several generations later through the leadership of Moses. So Paul is talking about these very well-known and revered patriarchs. And notice that in this one verse alone, there are three verbs that he uses to describe God's actions towards his people. And these verbs are, I believe, intentional. They illustrate not only God's actions then in those stories, but how God is still working today in Christ. Let's look at them quickly. Here's the first verb that we see. He talks about how God elects. God elects. Verse 17, <clears throat> he says, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers chose our fathers. This word chose in the Greek is an important word to New Testament theology. It's the Greek term eklegomai. Uh, it's the same root word of the word that is often translated as the elect in the New Testament. Eklegomai is the verbal form. The adjectival form is eklektos, a word that means chosen out or selected or elected. In other words, God had chosen his people for his possession. God is a choosing God. And this is exactly what 1 Peter 2.9 was referring to. Peter says, but you are a chosen race, eklektos, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy mercy. He's talking about salvation in the church, in Christ. If you are a follower of Christ, in other words, you have been chosen by God. And you may be thinking, well, I chose to follow Jesus, not before he chose you. Well, how does that work? I don't know. It's just what it says. Now, why does Paul incorporate this into his message? Why does he incorporate election into the sermon? Because his intent is to preach Christ to them. An election is still what God is doing today in Christ. People get worked up over this doctrine, right? This, this idea of, of election or predestination. And what, what I want you to connect with this morning, and really what I think what Paul wants us to connect with this morning, is that election is not, hear me, a New Testament concept. This is not a new thing. This is how God has always operated. That's what Paul is getting at here. That's what he's implying. God has always been an electing God. He has always been a choosing God, a God who selects and sets apart for his purpose and his glory. He chose Abraham. 
Abraham didn't choose him. He chose Isaac over Ishmael, even though Ishmael was the firstborn. He chose Jacob over Esau, even though technically Esau was the firstborn. He chose Joseph, even though Joseph was the youngest of several brothers. He chose Moses, even though Moses was a murderer. He chose Israel, even though there was nothing significant about this nation over and above the other nations. God is a choosing God. That is why in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 and 13, Paul says, put on then as God's chosen ones, eclect us, Holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against the other, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Why are we to do these things in Colossians 3? Why are we to have compassion and kindness on other people? Why are we to demonstrate meekness and patience? Why are we to forgive those as we have been forgiven? Because God has chosen us for such a thing. Because he has elected us for such a thing. God elects. Notice the second verb. He says God exalts. Look at verse 17 again. Paul says that the God of this people Israel not only chose our fathers, but made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. The verb here, hupsao, it's a word that means to raise aloft or to lift up, to exalt. Paul, again, is, is borrowing from imagery in the Exodus. How even though the people in Israel were in captivity under the brutal command of Pharaoh, God advanced them. He lifted them up above all power and authority that should have been over them. All throughout Exodus, the people of God continue to defy the odds. They multiply and they grow even though they are enslaved. God gives them Moses and Aaron and they demonstrate power that exceeds even the power of the court magicians of Pharaoh, culminating in the Passover where every firstborn of, Israel, or of Egypt dies that night, but Israel is saved through the power of the Passover lamb. Over and over again, as you read this book, this ragtag bunch of foreigners have the upper hand on the most powerful nation in the entire world. How? Because God exalted them above them. He lifts them up above Egypt. And again, Paul is teasing this out to demonstrate that the character of God then is true of the character of God now. God still exalts his people. This ragtag bunch of people. What does 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 through 29 say? You don't know? I'm going to read it for you. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, and not many of you were of noble birth. Translation, you guys were idiots and amount to nothing. <laughs> verse 27, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. What is God saying here? God chose to exalt the most unlikely people in the world to demonstrate power over the wise of the world, the weak, the foolish, the unlearned, the peasants of the earth, to exalt them above the wise, the strong, and the noble to put them to shame. The way the church looks, it should be confusing to the world. The world ought to look at a place like City on a Hill and be like, what is going on there? What is happening? He elects, he exalts. One final verb, 
Notice, God emancipates. Verse 17 continues. He not only chose our fathers and made the people great, but also, look, he led them out of it with an uplifted arm. This is referring to the actual exodus itself. Again, Paul is drawing upon the Old Testament in a way to illustrate the the way that God still works today, but in a slightly bigger manner. God still emancipates his people, not from Egypt, not from Pharaoh, but from sin, from death. He is the breaker of chains. What does Paul say in Galatians 5, verse 1? For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. He goes on in verse 13 and writes, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. He broke your chains to sin. Don't go back, is what he's saying. Don't return to it. 1 Peter 2, 16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Some young people in the faith need to hear that and read that again. Don't use your freedom as a cover-up to be a moron. Yes, you're free. Use wisdom. John 8, 36, so if the Son of Man sets you free, you will be free indeed. We see God emancipate people at City on a Hill all the time, all the time. How many of you, just by a show of hands, if you're willing, have seen God free you from sin in your life in real and practical ways? I mean, it's, it's true. If you're, and if you're a guest this morning and you don't know much about City on a Hill, we're a church of made up, that's made up of everyone from doctors to drug addicts. Maybe a little heavier on the drug addict side. <laughs> if we're being honest, some doctors who are also drug addicts. And honestly, we love it. We love it. We see God emancipate his people all the time. We see God break chains all the time. We have had, and this is, I'm not, please hear my heart, okay? I'm just giving you information. I'm not boasting in anything that we have done here. This is all the Lord. We've had 16 baptisms, including this morning, the last four weeks. I, I cannot explain it. It's the work of God. It's the hand of God. But but as I've watched these baptisms through the weeks here, one by one, I'm thinking, as I'm seeing them unfold in real time, about the stories of these individuals who are going into the water, the sin that defined them, the sin that defined their life, that gave them identity, that has now not only been forgiven in Christ, but is being utterly destroyed as they walk in the sanctifying process of becoming more like Jesus. Yes. And and what's amazing to me is that many of them are already being used by God to reach other people who struggle in the same way they struggled prior to coming to Christ. We say around here a lot, it bears worth repeating, God wants to turn your malady into your ministry. He wants to use you to reach other people who were broken like you. He wants to reach alcoholics through other alcoholics. He wants to minister to women who are survivors of sexual abuse by women who have found freedom from the abuse sexually that they've experienced. He wants to take the recovering addict and turn them into an apostle to go after other addicts who need the gospel, to share the help, hope, and healing that we only find in Christ, to give them hope that it doesn't have have to be this way, that it doesn't have to, there's more to life than this, that the chains holding you down right now can be broken because God is a chain-breaking God. He elects, he exalts, he sets free, he emancipates. Paul conveys all of this through the Old Testament. 
not just through any story in the Old Testament, through the big stories of the Old Testament, that both the Jew and the God-fearing Gentile would have understood. He knew his context. He knew who his audience was, and that allowed him to speak powerfully to them because he also knew what they believed. Knowing your context means knowing who your audience is. It means knowing what your audience believes. And third, it means knowing what your audience thinks about what you believe. So you need to know who your audience is, you need to know what they believe, but you also need to know at some point what they think about what you believe. At some point, you have to figure out, is the person I'm sharing the gospel with, speaking to, ministering to, are they interested or, or have they stopped listening? Or worse, are they getting angry at what I'm saying? Now for Paul and Barnabas, it goes very good for them initially. Look at verses 42 through 43. We're going to skip past a lot of the sermon. As I said, there's a lot there. Go back and read it. It's very powerful. But verses 42 and 43, this is right after Paul gets done preaching. And it says, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. This apparently struck a chord with them. They followed them out of church to continue talking after the message. Preachers love that, by the way. <laughs> Since my sarcasm. Verse 44 continues. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. I mean, we're nearing megachurch status at this point. The whole city shows up. Can you imagine Coming to church and hearing a sermon and coming back next week and the entirety of Fort Worth is trying to get in these doors, that would be, that would be miserable, honestly. Let's just be honest about it first. It would be tiring. It would also be incredible. It would be like this crazy work of God. That's what's happening here. But then look at verse 45. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Some of the Jews, presumably the leaders of the synagogues, got jealous of all of the attention. And they begin this sort of public debate of sorts. And so Paul and Barnabas respond and things just get more and more tense. They, they begin sort of contending back and forth. And I love it. While the debate rages on, the Gentiles are just hanging out in the background watching this whole thing unfold and they're getting more and more pumped up about the gospel. Look at verses 48 and 49. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. These guys are in the background like, yeah, right, get them, they show them, right? Sometimes public debate, public rebuke, public correction can be a good thing. It can lead to good things. Rarely does it happen on social media. It can lead to good things, rare. But there are times when it is necessary to protect other people, to protect the... the um, to protect people from being led astray into false teaching, to protect people from being led astray through slander, public correction online then is called for. It's a uh, tragedy that that's where we are in the world, but it is a necessity at some point. Rarely though, I mean, just be honest, rarely does it end well. And, and, and this is one of the things that I think is incumbent of pastors and preachers to calculate at every turn. It's not a question of whether or not a violation online warrants response. It's a question of whether or not that response outweighs the good, outweighs the bad. And that, that's a question I think we rarely ask before we respond. In an online setting, you're disconnected from tone and facial expressions. You get really impersonal. Things get ugly quickly. Paul and Barnabas are not online. They're in person. 
They begin contending back and forth. These men are opposing them. They are, they are teaching something contrary to the gospel. And so Paul and Barnabas begin this sort of back and forth volleying. And then look at verse 50. This is what it says. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their dis- district. These guys knew what they were doing, these leaders of the synagogues. They went after the rich women and the businessmen. They went where the money was. They knew how to play politics well, and they were successful at it. Paul and Barnabas were driven out of the city. And do you know the response of Paul and Barnabas during this time? Look at verse 51 and 52. Look at the offense, the utter offense, the way they fight back and retaliate against these men. That's not what they do. Look what it says. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them, and they went on to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. They knew who their audience was, They knew what their audience believed, and at this point, it was very clear what their audience thought about what they believed. And so they didn't continue to debate. They didn't issue a a formal complaint to the city to let them back in. They shook the dust off their feet, and they moved on to someone else who might be interested in the gospel. It's why you've heard me say before multiple times, and why you will, Lord willing, hear me say it a hundred times again in the future, I will never try to convince anyone to join this church. I will not do it as your pastor. I will not do it. Let me be clear, and especially if you're a guest this morning, I would love for you to join City on the Hill. I would love for you. I I think what we're doing here, I think what God is doing here is very compelling, and I would love you to be a part of that. I will even ask you right now, will you consider joining City on the Hill? But I will not try to convince you Because if I have to try to convince you to join City on a Hill, at some point, I'm going to say something or someone else is going to do something that's going to cause offense, and then I'm going to have to convince you to stay. And I'm not interested in the cat and mouse game. It's not honoring to you. It's not honoring to me. I only have so much time in a day to do the things that I believe God has called me to do. And I would rather that time be devoted to someone who wants to hear about and experience the help, hope, and healing of Jesus than someone who isn't interested. And that's no, that's no offense against you. You might be a fine person who really loves the Lord, and that's great. But, but I'm not here to debate with you over what we believe, what our convictions are scripturally. It is important for you to understand that. Not only for me as a pastor, but for you as a Christian who is ministering to other people in your life. Shake the dust off of your feet and move on and be filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. It's important to know who your audience is and it's important to know what they believe, but at some point, people of God, it is equally important to know what they think about what you believe too so that you can evaluate whether or not you stay and continue to sow seeds into their lives over and over and over again, or you move on to more fertile ground. There are, listen, there are more people in the world who we need to share the gospel with than we have time for. So we need to make sure then, understand this, that we're spending time with people who are receptive, not who are, have walls up and want nothing to do with what we want to hear. Now, what about some of you who have family members? You've been laboring over and praying for for years and years and years. Does that mean you stop caring for them, loving them, praying for them? No. You continue to pray for them. You continue to love them. 
But what it does mean is if you're dumping a ton of time into them and there is no interest at all with what you're doing, and in fact, it's creating more walls, it might be time to move on and that's okay. I'm gonna give you permission, it's okay to move on, to continue to pray, but to move on and use your time, invest your time elsewhere in people who need it, who want it. Are you being run out of the city? Shake the dust off your feet and go to the next one. That's the example of the apostle and Barnabas. What I want to do to end our time this morning, because I recognize that this is, you know, saying that, that last part there, especially when it comes to family members, that might be really hard for some of you to hear that. And I, I understand that. And so I want to end our time here this morning with a little bit of prayer. And I just want you to go before the Lord and the power of the Spirit. We believe in the priesthood of all believers. You don't need a priest. You're the priest if you're a believer in Christ. Go before the Lord Jesus and ask God to reveal to you who you need to be spending more time investing in and maybe who you need to draw back from a little bit. Proverbially, shake the dust off your feet. Doesn't mean you disconnect. Doesn't mean you hate you still love, you still pray for, but, but redirect some of your time to more fertile ground. I'm going to give you just a moment to pray alone, and then I'll close this out in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel that saves. We thank you that you are a God who chooses the most unlikely people to exalt above those with worldly power and wisdom, to bring them to shame, that you might receive glory and honor and power, and not us. You, by the Son, through the Spirit, receive glory for it all. Would you visit, Lord, our people this morning here who are especially weary, tired, perhaps even hurting, who've committed so much time investing in people that have made it very clear they are of no interest to the gospel. And would you give them courage to maintain prayer for those people, 
prayerfully consider more fertile ground that they may begin investing their time and lives into. Would you make City on a Hill a place that is courageously willing to stand for what we believe Scripture teaches concerning the help, hope, and healing of Jesus and to unwaveringly go after those who need it most. With no offense when others reject it. Make us a light in a dark world. Make us a true representative of our namesake, a city set upon a hill, a place of refuge for those hurting and lost and broken, a place that is fortified against the attacks of the enemy, that is easy to defend, to difficult to compromise, that we may be a safe place for all who come. And may we be a people who stands upon the power and the sufficiency of your word and the powerful direction of your Holy Spirit. How we love you and we thank you. And the powerful name that is above every name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. God bless you. We will see you uh, Friday, hopefully, for year lead. See you then.